It was 1936 in Peking, and 24-year-old Kisaku Sasaki was enjoying one of the city's cafes. Sasaki was a Japanese soldier, and he was not too welcome in Peking, where locals resented the foreigners who filled their streets with bloodshed. In addition to the Chinese nationalists combating the communists led by Mao Zedong, Japan had also escalated its attacks on the country, and within Peking itself was the Legation Quarter, a walled-in city of embassies and consuls for the various European nations that also had a stake in Chinese affairs. As a result of all these various nations and peoples all fighting to keep their hands on China, tensions ran high on all sides. Sasaki and his friend knew this as they left the cafe and began walking back to their barracks. They were on Hadaman Street when a fight broke out between the Japanese soldiers and some white guys. The attackers hit Sasaki in the temple, rendering him unconscious. Sasaki's friends swore the assailants were British, but the British pointed out how the soldiers could have easily been Americans. Either way, they all fled, leaving Sasaki in the street for a passing American Marine to find and take to the hospital, where he was pronounced dead. According to the New York Times, quote, Japanese correspondents have been warned not to cable news of the incident to Japan as a precaution against stirring up excitement. End quote. Of course, they did, and Japan was pissed. They were even more pissed when the British investigated the incident and declared that they were not responsible for the death. At the end of August, three British soldiers were headed to their barracks after finishing a film at the theater when a moving car began firing at them. Reports claim that one of the soldiers was wounded in the leg as a result of the drive-by shooting, but it doesn't seem as though any of the three Brits were killed. English newspapers wrote about, quote, Rumors it was instigated by Japanese seeking to avenge the slaying on May 26th of Kisaku Sasaki, a Japanese soldier, end quote. The shooting resulted in the British embassy contacting the Chinese government, asking that they, quote, protect British lives and property in China, end quote. The entire affair seemed inconclusive to all involved. The Brits refused to take responsibility, the Chinese were irritated by all this foreigner nonsense, and Japan was still angry at their dead soldier, and probably angry that the shot to the British soldier's leg was not a shot to his head. Everyone was left with the sense that there was more to come. Six months later, there was. A dead British girl, murdered and mutilated, her heart torn from her chest. And the blame game resumed. This is Old Blood, the historical true crime podcast. I'm your host, Elise.
1937, there were about 1.5 million people living in the city of Peking, now called Beijing, one of the oldest cities in the world. Of these 1.5 million people, 2 to 3,000 of them were foreigners. There were Americans, Brits, French, Italians, Germans, Belgians, and Japanese living in Peking. Most of them lived inside the legation quarter, a two-square-mile Walden neighborhood that held all these embassies and housed all of its officials. There was also a large population of Russians who had fled their home after the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. White Russians, those who were against the communists, fled Russia, and many of them ended up in Peking. Foreigners who could afford to do so lived in the legation quarter, It was essentially a European city inside of China, and the Chinese weren't even allowed to come and go without official passes. The buildings were all in the Western style, and as many of the foreign dignitaries were wealthy, and made even wealthier by the favorable exchange rate, the legation quarter was quite the fancy place, with luxury apartments, restaurants and cafes, movie theaters, skating rinks, shopping, and a bustling nightlife. But not all foreigners could afford to live in the legation quarter, like many of the white Russians who lost everything in the revolution. There were also plenty who came to China because of the Great Depression in the Western world, along with other refugees. The poorest of these wound up outside the quarter in a sort of no-man's land called the Badlands, The Badlands hosted brothels, bars, and opium dens alongside the slums that residents lived in. As you can tell from the name, the Badlands were a place for respectable people to avoid. Foreigners who did not live inside the safe, guarded legation quarter often skirted the Badlands to avoid it entirely. Edward Theodore Chalmers Werner arrived in China in the 1880s. He was born to a family that traveled often, so it was natural that Werner also yearned for an international posting. He began his career as a British diplomat in Peking, but was moved around to about 10 other cities before becoming the British Consul General in Fuchao. While in China, Werner became fluent in the language and began a lifelong career of studying Chinese history, specializing in mythology and superstitions. He was intelligent and dedicated to his studies, which earned him respect. But he irked many of the foreigners that he worked with. He was known for being a difficult guy to work with, for having a temper and not knowing when to keep quiet, hence his being moved around to so many different locations. And in 1914, Werner quit the consular service to focus on his Chinese studies, known also as Sinology. Werner returned to Peking, where he often lectured at the university, and became a member of China's Historiographical Bureau. He married a woman by the name of Gladys Nina Ravenshaw, and the two adopted a daughter in 1919. Pamela Werner was likely the offspring of poor white Russians who could no longer afford to care for her 
but the family that adopted her, Gladys, Nina, and Werner, were well off. Gladys Nina died young in 1922, and she left her money to Pamela. Werner raised Pamela by himself, and under his care, she learned Mandarin fluently and came to love picking as her adoptive father did. Pamela was a wild child. It made sense given her rocky upbringing, her adoption, her adopted mother's early death, and the fact that her father was often away on research trips, leaving her alone with the household staff who didn't have the authority to punish her when she acted up. She wasn't a bad girl, though. She was just a little wild, curious about the world, and rebellious. So... This episode is largely based on the book Midnight in Peking by Paul French, who essentially resurrected this murder case from the forgotten pages of history. And in it, French often speaks of the two Pamelas that existed in 1937. The first Pamela was a schoolgirl, just a child. Pamela was 19 in 1937, but she still hadn't finished her education. Because of her rebellious nature, she was bounced around from school to school. She talked back to her teachers too often at the convent of white Franciscans, so Werner enrolled her at a French school. She was asked to leave there too, so she went to an American school. This didn't work out either, so Werner sent Pamela to the Peking Methodist School. She was smart, so they allowed her a spot, but was soon asked to leave because of her behavior. Werner ultimately had to send her away to the city of Tientsin, some 80 miles away. And here, at the grammar school in Tientsin, Pamela began to blossom. She got a boyfriend, a Polish-Jewish athlete at the school by the name of Michael Misha Horjelski, Misha was popular and hunky, and the people said that the two became close. But this didn't stop her from seeing other boys when she returned to Peking. Pamela might have been having fun in Tianjin, but she had also found trouble there, too. Pamela left the grammar school and returned to Peking, where Werner was in the process of finding a school in England to send her away to, having exhausted all of his options in China. So, Pamela returned to Peking, excited to reunite with her friends there. She was also planning a visit from Misha. She was excited to introduce her boyfriend to Dad. But she also had other suitors that she met up with, some that she hid from her father since he was known to chase after those he didn't like. On one occasion, when a Chinese boy, a friend of Pam's, arrived at the home, Werner hit the guy with his cane and broke his nose. But really, her interest in boys began after she left Peking for grammar school in Tianjin. Pamela was plenty happy to reconnect with the other friends she had left behind, and when Pamela reunited with these friends, they all agreed she seemed much more grown up. Pamela was no longer the schoolgirl they remembered. She was a woman now. The Werners did not live in the legation quarter with the majority of the other foreigners. 
Werner was a Sinologist, and there was not much Chinese culture at the foreign embassies and on the very European streets there. They instead lived in a courtyard house close to the legation quarter and alongside the ancient Tartar wall that protected the city. When Pamela wanted to go meet with her friends there, she had to take a longer path that took her around the Badlands to avoid the maze-like alleys and courtyards that became dens of vice at night. Pamela's preferred route was to follow along the Tartar Wall Road until she passed the Badlands and could enter the heavily guarded legation quarter. Pamela had plans on January 7th. It was Russian Christmas, and it was a big deal in Peking where there was a large Russian population. There would be tons of parties and lots going on that night. She had a dentist appointment earlier in the day, and then she returned home to write some letters. By three, she was preparing to go out. Ho Ying, a household servant, stopped to talk to Pamela about dinner plans, and she said she wanted him to make some rice and meatballs for dinner that night. She planned on being back by 7.30 so that she could have dinner with her father. Shortly after, Pamela got onto her bike and cycled over to the legation quarter. Here, she met Ethel at the Hotel Wagon Lee, the city's large and popular hotel. Pamela followed Ethel Gurevich, a daughter of a white Russian family, back to her home, and there they had tea and some buttered bread with Ethel's mom as the three women chatted. At around six, Pam and Ethel headed to a newly built French skating rink where Pamela had just secured a membership to. One of her friends had recently introduced her to the skating rink, and she liked it so much that she got herself a membership. They met a third friend, Lillian Marinovsky, also Russian, and the three skated until about 7.30 when Pamela told them she had to go. She had to get home to have dinner with her father. Ethel and Lillian were worried about Pamela departing on her own and asked if she would be all right. Pamela replied, I've been alone all my life. I am afraid of nothing, nothing. And besides, Peking is the safest city in the world. Pamela got onto her bicycle and rode off. It was the last time her friends ever saw her. When Pamela failed to return home at 7.30, Werner began to worry. He gave it an hour and then grabbed a kerosene lamp and set out to look for her. It was winter in Peking, so he found the streets mostly deserted, which only increased his anxiety. He stopped by Pamela's friends' homes, but she wasn't there. According to Ethel and Lillian's parents, the two other girls came home at around eight. None of them knew where Pamela was. Werner returned home in the early hours of the morning, caught a few hours of sleep, and then set off again, this time with a flashlight. Werner visited the office of W.P. Thomas, an old friend of his, and the Legation Quarter Police Commissioner. He obviously wasn't there so early, so Werner left him a note and then continued searching. Werner returned using the old Tartar Wall Road, 
when he saw a crowd gathered by the ditch that ran along the ancient wall. He ran towards it, afraid of what he might find. Bodies were found on a near-daily basis in Beijing, but they were usually natives or poor foreigners who decided to kill themselves rather than continue the lives they were living. But Werner had a feeling this was not the case. The crowd was all too interested in the bundle in the ditch. Werner finally laid eyes on the mutilated girl lying in the ditch and screamed, "Pamela!" The seventy-two-year-old then collapsed. It was her. Because the murder occurred outside of the legation quarter, it was under the jurisdiction of the experienced detective, Colonel Han Shi Ching. But seeing as the victim was a white British woman, Han also informed Thomas, who would investigate the legation quarter and its foreigners. When Han first saw the body, it was covered with a sheet of frost. The girl was dressed, but her clothes didn't look right on her. She wore a tartan skirt and wool cardigan with a belted overcoat for the cold. Her silk stockings were torn. Her shoes were at the scene, but some distance away, with a handkerchief stuffed into one. There was also a bloodied membership card to a French skating club lying on the ground. There was a silk chemise, but it was discovered underneath her body, not on her. And her face—God, her face had been slashed to the point of non-recognition. All Colonel Han could see was one partially damaged eye. Even through the mutilation, her gray eye was stunning: gray eyes and blonde hair. Han looked at her wrist and found a luxury watch still fastened to it. This woman is a foreigner, Han thought, a white girl, and judging from her watch, a wealthy one at that. At first, he thought she might be one of the white Russians who decided to commit suicide, but he could see now that he was wrong on many accounts. This girl was murdered. It was no suicide. And the motive was not money; otherwise, she wouldn't be lying here with a platinum diamond watch still on her delicate wrist. The time was frozen at just after midnight. In the meantime, officers kept back the growing crowd, and a straw mat was used to shield the corpse from prying eyes. But Han needed to look more closely; needed to see everything he could before the body was taken away. Han approached the girl and began to remove her blouse, only to recoil in shock. Beneath her cardigan was a gaping chest wound. Someone had cut her open from throat to pelvis and ripped her heart from her chest. Han replaced her blouse over the open body cavity and began to think. There was an odd lack of blood at the scene. Sure, there was blood on the girl, but she had been cut completely open and slashed dozens of times. The amount of blood here should be staggering, if this was where she was killed. The real crime scene must be elsewhere. Han realized, and then Werner showed up, clapping his hand to his face and screaming his daughter's name before collapsing. 
Han worried he might be unable to identify the woman because she was so badly mutilated. If it wasn't for her unique gray eyes and the watch left on her body, Han might not have been able to say for sure who she was. But now he was certain. This poor girl was Pamela Werner, the daughter of a former British consul. Pamela was carefully placed into a coffin and transported to the Peking Union Medical College for an autopsy. The autopsy revealed damage to nearly every part of her body. The doctors performing it agreed that it was, quote, one of the worst cases of mutilation they had ever seen, end quote. In addition to the random slash and stab wounds blanketing her body, Pamela's right arm was nearly severed from her shoulder. The doctor, Chang, claimed that the killer, or killers, used two different blades when doing so. Her humerus, the long bone that runs from your shoulder to the elbow, was fractured in two different places. And yes, her chest had been slit open to reveal a number of missing organs, most notably her heart. Whoever killed her had used enough force to break open each one of her ribs from the inside. Pamela's bladder, kidney, and liver were also missing. Her stomach was still there, though severed at the top so that it was no longer connected to the body. Inside her stomach were the remains of Chinese food. There were no drugs in her system, and she had drank very little alcohol prior to her death. The half-digested food in her stomach told the doctors that she lived for at least several hours after leaving the skating rink and had died sometime between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. Her genitals were similarly mutilated, so much so that doctors performing the autopsy could conclude that Pamela was not a virgin before her death, but they couldn't say when the last time she had sexual intercourse was, or if it was consensual. It was impossible to tell if she was raped before she was killed. Investigators wondered if that was the point. The gynecologist who observed Pamela during the autopsy agreed that the crime was sexually motivated, but that it was, quote, not the work of an ordinary sexual sadist, end quote. As for the weapon, Dr. Chang concluded it was a four-inch long blade, most likely double-edged. They described the attack as frenzied, and yet the incisions made to her body were done with a skilled hand and with, quote, some sort of specialist cutting tool, end quote. Whoever carved her up knew what they were doing. And yet all of these wounds were done post-mortem. Thankfully, Pamela had been dead during the mutilation of her body. There were scratch marks on her arms that she received before her death, but nearly every other wound on her was done after she died. Pamela died from a blow to her head with a blunt instrument to her right eye specifically, according to Dr. Chang. The blow split her skull open and blood poured into her brain. In all likelihood, Pamela crumpled to the floor where she was standing and died within several minutes. But 
her attacker was facing her. She looked straight at him when he dealt her the blow that ended her life. The killer was stronger than her, taller than her, and stood only a short distance away. Pamela most likely knew who killed her. Han theorized that Pamela had been killed elsewhere, then undressed before being mutilated, seeing as none of her clothes bore stab wounds. The killer then dressed her and transported her to the ditch she lie in, only 250 yards from her home. The home she and Werner lived in was on the other side of the ancient wall. Towering above them was the Fox Tower. It was built in 1564, and locals said it was haunted by fox spirits, so it was usually deserted at night. It was a good place to dump a body and not be seen. Since Pamela was found with an expensive watch still on her wrist, the motive could not have been money. And if the motive wasn't money and the killer was someone who could just walk away from a diamond watch, then the killer or killers were likely well off too. And since Pamela also was British, Han realized that the murderer was likely a foreigner as well. He would have to work closely with Thomas to gain access to the legation quarter where he had no authority. Because of this, Thomas and Hahn invited Detective Chief Inspector Richard Dennis to help investigate the murder. Dennis was ex-Scotland Yard and had the benefit of not having political stakes that would get in the way of the investigation. Hahn knew this was a high-profile case and would need the help, so he specifically asked for DCI Dennis, who agreed to help, and began the journey from Tianjin, where he lived, to Peking. Dennis and Han began a two-pronged investigation. Dennis would take the legation quarter and the questioning of white witnesses. Han would investigate everywhere else. One of Han's first leads was reports of a rickshaw puller cleaning blood off of his seat cushion the morning after the murder. A rickshaw, by the way, is one of those small two-wheel carriages that's powered by someone in front grabbing onto the carriage and wheeling it through the streets. These were common in Peking at the time, as cars were rare, and people could hire a rickshaw puller for cheap. Sun Taishing was one of the rickshaw pullers and was at work on the night Pamela died. Sun told officers that he had picked up a foreigner who had gotten into a drunken fight in the Badlands. Sun didn't notice the guy left blood in his carriage until the morning after, so he stopped to clean it out. Sun gave detectives the address he had taken the man to, and it belonged to an American Marine. And, as the amount of blood in the carriage was so small, detectives realized they were barking up the wrong tree and moved on. DCI Dennis, meanwhile, had made his way through the legation quarter to the homes of Pamela's friends. 18-year-old Lillian denied knowing Pamela very well. She said she really was more of Ethel's friend. When Dennis spoke to Ethel, only 15, she explained how Pamela had seemed different upon her return. She just seemed more mature, more into boys. 
Pamela didn't have much of a social life before and preferred to bike around the city, exploring it on her own. But once she returned from grammar school, she was popular and busy. Ethel told Dennis that she had met Pamela at the Hotel Wagon Lee at around 5 p.m. But if she left her home at 3 and it took about 20 minutes for her to get there, then what had Pamela done in the other hour and a half? Dennis then visited the hotel and spoke to the workers there. He found a concierge that remembered Pamela well. She entered the hotel sometime between three and four and asked some questions about letting a room there. The concierge noticed her take a brochure and then she left. Dennis wondered why Pamela would be looking at hotel rates. Was she planning on running away or perhaps having a tryst with someone? Her boyfriend was also planning on visiting Peking. Was she looking at hotels for him, perhaps? To be honest, it was Werner himself that stuck in Dennis's mind. He had heard the tales of how difficult Werner was to work with and how many arguments he had with diplomats across China. Werner had broken the nose of Pamela's suitors before, and it was well known that he had a temper. Dennis didn't like thinking that a father could do such a thing to his daughter, but it did make him wonder. Most of the time someone is murdered, it's by someone close to the victim. Who was closer to Pamela than Werner? When Dennis went to talk to Werner, he told the detective a little more about Pamela's life. Werner said that Pamela had gotten into trouble at school in Tianjin, and that's why he had to send her to England for school. Werner said Pamela was having some trouble with the headmaster, but was surprised that Dennis didn't already know this. Apparently, Sidney Yates, headmaster of Tianjin Grammar School, had made some moves on Pamela and made her feel very uncomfortable. Dennis dug more into Pamela's life in Tianjin and found that she had been telling the truth about Yates. He was known for his friendliness towards the girl there, and known for his violence too. He loved caning students, whipping them with his cane and sending students home with welts and bruises. But the school was hesitant to act on this information. The grammar school represented the British presence in China, and no one wanted it to be known that a headmaster was abusing girls there. Yates only partially admitted his guilt in the matter, admitting that his behavior was improper and offered to resign. Headmaster Yates was in Tianjin when Pamela was murdered, so he had an alibi, but Dennis wondered what else happened to the murdered girl that he wasn't aware of. Arguments over the direction of the investigation surfaced early. Dennis was digging deep into Pamela's life in Tianjin, but the British administration in Peking didn't appreciate detectives looking at British suspects. They were all certain that the killer was Chinese. They figured if a girl was killed and mutilated with her heart and organs torn out, then it must be the Chinese. Werner did not agree. Werner was certain that the killers were foreigners. 
He was an expert in Chinese mythology. Like, he literally wrote the book on it. Several, actually, including Myths and Legends in China and Dictionary of Chinese Mythology. Werner was upset that people were trying to pawn the murder off onto an unknown Chinese resident simply because they didn't want the killer to be a white guy. He was adamant that the killer was a foreigner. Not in sociology, myths and legends, nor in art, science, or philosophy, Werner explained, has a kinship with the appropriation of human hearts been apparent in this country. And again, Werner started to piss everyone off, including his old enemy, now consul and Britain's coroner in Peking, Nicholas Fitzmaurice. Years earlier, Werner and Fitzmaurice argued over historical artifacts. Fitzmaurice wanted the objects taken to London, but Werner was appalled by this, thinking it no different than thievery, and argued that the historical objects should remain in China. And now, here Fitzmaurice was in the position to make decisions regarding his daughter's case, and he was pushing for investigators to find a Chinese killer. Han and Dennis knew that they needed to search the legation quarter more thoroughly, but Fitzmaurice stood in their way, saying, quote, a search of Chinese Peking would be sufficient, end quote. Werner also wanted the reward postings to be printed in Chinese to allow a way for people to collect the reward anonymously because he felt certain that there were Chinese residents out there who knew about his daughter's murder but were too afraid to talk about it. Fitzmaurice refused Werner's request, saying that the reward must be retrieved from him personally. And sure enough, the next big clue investigators received was from foreigners, though just not in the legation quarter. A Russian lady living in the Badlands called the police because she found a bloody dagger among her tenant's things. It belonged to a man named Pinfold. When he was found and arrested, he said nothing, like literally nothing, just sat and stared at the investigators without one word as to who he was. One of the officers at the station recognized him, though. Pinfold was one of the people gathered in the crowd at the crime scene. The officer noticed him because he hung around a lot longer than the rest of the crowd and seemed extra disturbed by the crime. But he was a tough guy, though. Later, investigation found that Pinfold deserted the Canadian Army, committed some crimes in the United States, and then came to China. There, he managed to get a job as a security guard for one of China's many warlords at the time. The Canadians in Peking confirmed Pinfold's identity, despite Pinfold himself not even saying what his name was. And then the Canadians added that he was known to frequent Two locations in the Badlands. Both were on its main street, Chuan Pan Hutong, Hutong being a name for the courtyard alleyways prevalent in Peking. The first was number 27, a dive bar owned by some Russians, and the other was number 28, a brothel. <clears throat> 
Pamela had no business being in the Badlands, but investigators had to admit that it was possible that she rode her bike through there the night she died. What if she realized how late she was getting home to eat dinner with her dad and decided to ride straight through the Badlands rather than around them as she usually did? When Detective Hahn visited the bar at number 27, he asked to speak with the manager, and a 44-year-old named Joe Nof came out to talk to him. Nof denied knowing anything about Pamela other than that she had been killed. Legation Police Commissioner Thomas spoke with Dennis about Pinfold, but Thomas insisted that Dennis look more into another foreigner, an American dentist by the name of Wentworth Prentice. <laughs> I just realized... He's Prentice the Dentist. <laughs> Prentice knew Pinfold, Thomas explained, for they were all members of a nudist colony that liked to meet in the western hills around the city. Prentice was the one who organized these nudist events. Consul Fitzmaurice told DCI Dennis to calm down with the foreigners again, saying the obvious place to search for the killer was with the Chinese. But Dennis went to visit Wentworth Prentice anyway. Dennis discovered that Prentice lived in a nice apartment in the legation quarter, an apartment that was right across the street from the French skating rink, the last place Pamela was seen alive. When Wentworth invited Dennis inside the apartment, the detective was shocked to find all of his windows open, despite it being winter in Peking. Prentice explained that his crazy Chinese landlord decided to paint the inside of his apartment in the middle of winter for unknown reasons. Wentworth Prentice graduated from Harvard Dental School in the U.S. and then arrived in China in 1918. He lived there with his wife and children until they all moved away to Los Angeles in 1932, no one knew why, but detectives did find a file with the American consulate that expressed concern over the safety of one of his children, though that was the extent of the explanation. And then there were the rumors about Prentice. He often had wild parties that he threw at his apartment. He liked women. When Dennis asked Prentice about Pamela, he said, I have never seen the girl in my life. On the night she was murdered, Prentice said he had been at work and then attended a movie. He used to go with his family, but now that they were gone, he just went by himself. And no, he had no ticket stub to show his proof. The other man that Thomas told Dennis to look into, George Gorman, helped Prentice run the nudist weekends in the Western Hills. Gorman was a reporter, and he used his writing to attack the murder investigation. Gorman was sympathetic to Japan at this time, the run-up to World War II and their invasion of China. Thus, he argued that the killers were Chinese and that investigators were foolish to be looking elsewhere. When Gorman heard the police were then barking up Prentice's tree, he wrote in the Peking Chronicle that the police were harassing an innocent man, that they were floundering. Gorman's passion for the case was quite interesting to DCI Dennis. Gorman also lived in the legation quarter, and Dennis discovered that Pamela had a connection to the Gormans. His wife explained that Pamela had been there the day before her murder, 
because she was friends with their daughter. The two girls and Mrs. Gorman had some tea and then introduced her to the new French skating club. It was a small world, and it was getting even smaller for DCI Dennis. But unfortunately, time was up. Dennis was basically on loan from Tianjin, and he had to be back to other cases. And then there was the fact that everyone was mad at him for investigating white folk for a murder that they wanted to be committed by someone Chinese. By Chinese New Year, Pamela had fallen from newspaper headlines, and Dennis was called back home to Tianjin. By June, Fitzmaurice held a final inquest and rendered the verdict murder by a person or persons unknown. In truth, much of Peking had changed its mindset since her murder in January. The Japanese were getting closer to Peking, and everyone lived afraid of what would happen if and when they arrived. They had a lot more to worry about than Pamela. And on July 29, 1937, Peking fell to the Japanese, who were also moving in on Tientsin, Shanghai, and Nanking, where Japanese soldiers raped, tortured, and killed about 300,000 civilians. Author Paul French wrote, By the end of 1937, it was clear that China was in a fight for its very survival. Werner recognized this, but it was his daughter that was murdered. He wasn't giving up that easily. While most other foreigners were leaving Peking, Werner stayed to continue investigating Pamela's murder, saying, I shall not let the matter rest as long as I have breath in my body. He urged authorities to reopen the case and urged them to keep searching. He wrote pamphlets on the matter and wrote into the newspapers. He begged DCI Dennis, the Chinese police, or anyone to please help him. Werner pled, quote, the sight of my child's kind little face half cut away and bleeding as her mutilated body lay on the ground that terrible morning seemed to drag my eyes out of my head and the shock has permanently injured my heart. During every minute of every day that vision has beat upon my brain. For the remainder of his life, Werner refused to give up seeking justice for Pamela. Werner had been unhappy with how authorities were handling the case anyway, and he had been a consul himself. He knew how the British legation system in Peking worked and knew how it should have been working, so he used his own connections and money to continue funding the investigation. Werner found that a lot more people were willing to talk to him than were willing to talk to Han or Dennis. There was plenty of Peking police who had been fired with the Japanese invasion of their city and were eager to earn money in whatever way they could. And some of them wanted to speak of the murder before, but were not allowed to. Werner had his hunches about what had happened, and although he didn't know enough to point fingers yet, he knew the killers had to be foreigners like him. 
The extent of his daughter's mutilation told him that her killer hadn't wanted her to be recognized. The only reason she was identified was by her clothing and the expensive watch, which must have accidentally been left behind. Werner had a hunch that the murderer wanted to make it look like a Chinese crime to take suspicion off of themselves. Werner's hunches kept taking his mind back to the Badlands, back to the dive bar and brothel at 27 and 28 Chuan Ban Hutong, back to the foreigners and their strange nudist cult out in the western hills. When Dennis spoke to Wentworth Prentice, he explained it as a sort of hippie nature society, but Werner couldn't help thinking of it as a bacchanalia of sex, drugs, and violence that his daughter had somehow been lured into. Werner's hunches kept bringing him back to the Badlands, back to Prentice and his buddies Joe Nof, George Gorman, and Pinfold. But there was nothing conclusive to tie Pamela to them. Pinfold had been released, by the way, after it became clear that the police knew who Pinfold was and realized the blood on the dagger was animal blood. Pinfold finally started talking, and he admitted to knowing Prentice and the others. He had been security for a warlord, but then that warlord left, and Pinfold was doing odd jobs around Peking until he was hired by Prentice. Prentice wanted to make sure that no one was sneaking up on them in the western hills. They weren't doing anything wrong or illegal, he said. It was just that people would never understand these nude foreigners out in the hills, so he wanted to keep out prying eyes and keep their society from the press. So he hired Pinfold to help him. Then there were the rumors that Prentice sent Joe Nof to fetch him a lawyer in case things went south for him, and Pinfold had been allegedly walking around the Badlands asking if the police had, quote, got the American yet, end quote. Werner felt that Prentice was at the center of everything. There were just far too many coincidences, too many oddities like the wide-open windows at his apartment, too many roads led back to Prentice and his buddies. But Werner wasn't able to say this with enough confidence until authorities returned Pamela's belongings to him. In addition to realizing that nothing had been fingerprinted, Werner got back Pamela's diary. In it, Pamela wrote an entry in the summer of 1936, the year before her murder. She had gone on a picnic to the western hills where none other than George Gorman was in attendance. George Gorman, whose wife and daughter had tea with Pamela just before her murder, who introduced Pamela to the French skating rink where she had last been seen alive. And not just that, but Pamela wrote that George had made love to her, though Paul French says... In this case, Pamela simply meant that George was propositioning her, coming on to her and trying to get her to do things with him. She rebuffed him, of course, and then laughed at how ridiculous the matter was. DCI Dennis had not realized that Pamela had a connection to the Gormans. 
He also didn't know that Prentice had also lied to him about his connection to Pamela. Werner had his hands on a letter signed by Prentice. The letter was to say that the course of treatment for one of his patients would be $50, referring to only the upper left cuspid. The patient was Pamela Werner, and it was dated December 1st, 1936. So much for Prentice never once seeing Pamela. Werner returned to Pamela's friends. Ethel told him that she actually saw Pamela talking to a man at the skating rink, but she wouldn't say who. Werner interpreted this as her being afraid of the man and not wanting to say anything. And then, in the fall of 1938, Werner was approached by a former student of his who happened to have attended the same school as Pamela and Tien Sin, but a few years ahead of her. She, too, had a dental appointment with Prentice about six months before the murder. He charged her very little and then began coming on to her. She got scared and avoided him the best she could, but ran into him several weeks later. Prentice tried to stop the girl by jumping out of his rickshaw and running after her, but she got away. She told Werner that she knew of other girls who had gone with Prentice, too. They all said he had taken them to a place in the Badlands on Chuanpan Hutong, and then afterward many of them decided to leave China or were curiously silent about what had happened. The rumors were that these girls were forced to have sex with Prentice, but they didn't want to talk about it out of shame or fear that their reputations would be ruined, or fear that they wouldn't be believed. It didn't help that everyone knew how Prentice's wife and kids had all fled to Los Angeles, leaving him alone in Peking, where he was known to throw raucous parties at his apartment. Everyone talked about how Prentice got pervy after his family left. Werner decided to check on Prentice's alibi for the night, and realized that he had to be lying about that too. He claimed he went to the cinema the night that Pamela was murdered. There were only two theaters showing foreign films that night, and the last showing was at 5.30. So how could Prentice have gone to an 8 o'clock film? From his detective work, Werner theorized that Pinfold, acting as a sort of procurer for Prentice, had let him know that Pamela was back in Peking from Tianjin. When Werner heard that Pinfold was actually seen nearby their home on Armor Factory Alley, he realized that he was probably there to get a message to Pam from Prentice saying that he left her a letter at the Wagon Lee Hotel. The concierge there confirmed that Pamela did indeed retrieve a letter from the lobby on the day of her murder, and it was left by a man of Prentice's description. The letter must have invited Pamela to a party that night, a party to celebrate Russian Christmas, which was a huge deal in Peking where there was a large Russian population. This was Prentice's M.O. after all, luring women to parties and then attacking them. Werner also spoke himself with the rickshaw puller Sun Tishing. Apparently, the alibi told to Detective Han was not the truth, 
Sun was waiting around the Badlands near numbers 27 and 28 because he knew they were busy at night and people would need rides. At about 10 p.m., Sun saw a rare car pull up from the direction of the legation quarter. Inside the car was a white man who fit Prentice's description, a half-white, half-Chinese man, the Chinese chauffeur driving the car, and a white girl with yellow hair. Sun was there at around midnight waiting for a customer when he saw a Russian lady appear in the doorway along with a Chinese man. The man called Sun over, and then two white men carried a girl out of the building, supporting her under her arms. Sun could immediately see there was something wrong with the girl. Her skirt was ripped, and she had a white cloth draped over her head, and she was barely moving. He assumed she must just be really drunk. Perhaps the men inside went a little too far with her. The Russian woman gave him precise instructions of where to go and had him take a strange route. Sun left them at a small access point in the Tartar Wall. They didn't even tip Sun before shooing him off. He noticed the blood in the rickshaw the next day and tried cleaning it out. But this was not the account that Han told Werner. So who was lying? The rickshaw puller? Or did Han have some reason for keeping a story a secret? Sun said he was only questioned by one detective, Han, and he had told him the truth about what he had seen. Werner had to wonder if Han had other reasons for lying. And what else had Han lied about? Werner discovered that the brothel at number 28 had been shut down the day after the murder. The owners sold their lease on a place that was making them good money and took a loss of 4000 in silver dollars. They fled to Tianjin and then got themselves Chinese passports. Werner spoke with some sex workers too, thinking perhaps one of them saw Pamela in the Badlands. Someone named Shura confirmed with Werner that Prentice was, in fact, a very scary man who liked to frighten girls with knives, and that Pinfold was always hanging around as his sidekick slash muscle. Joe Nof had been a partner with the Russian dive bar owners at number 27 before becoming a manager of a cabaret in town. Nof, as you recall, was Prentice's friend fellow Western Hills hunter and allegedly the one sent to Tianjin to help Prentice find a lawyer. And John O'Brien, quote, one of Pam's most persistent suitors, end quote, according to Paul French, was also a friend of Prentice. Another sex worker by the name of Marie told Werner straight out, Prentice killed her. Marie told Werner that Prentice had taken Pamela to a downstairs bedroom at the brothel at number 28. No one realized there was a bedroom on the bottom floor because the prostitutes all worked in bedrooms upstairs. But sure enough, when Werner visited number 28, he found the bedroom that Marie described. Werner, knowing Pamela died from several blows to the head from a blunt object, looked about the room, and his eyes caught on a chair that had a repaired leg. The wood had been broken off, 
and it was fixed with a metal brace. Werner was so sure that he had it figured out. He knew that he was headed in the right direction, and though he had discovered much on his own, it still wasn't enough for the authorities to reopen the investigation. And, believe me, he tried. Werner pled with authorities and fought with people over reopening the murder investigation, all the way until February 7th, 1954, when he died. His only consolation was that Prentice had died several years before him in 1947. Wentworth Prentice died in his legation quarter apartment at the age of 54. Flash forward to the 2000s, and Paul French was reading a book about Mao Zedong by the journalist Edgar Snow, who lived in Peking as basically a neighbor of Werner and Pamela. Snow had mentioned Pamela's murder in passing, and it was still stuck in French's mind when he woke the next morning. He decided to research the case, and the product of his research was the 2012 book Midnight in Peking, How the Murder of a Young Englishwoman Haunted the Last Days of Old China. And it's a brilliant book, if only for how well French is able to resurrect the Peking of the 1930s. French agreed with Werner's conclusion that it was Wentworth Prentice who murdered Pamela. In Midnight in Peking, French reconstructed Pamela's murder, starting off with Werner's premise that Pamela had been lured to Prentice's apartment. French tells us that Pamela received a letter from him left at the Hotel Wagon Lee, went and had fun with her friends, went ice skating, and then arrived at Prentice's apartment across from the skating rink at the time stated on the letter. French thinks that Prentice and Pamela then left for a Russian Christmas party, but unbeknownst to Pamela, she was taken to the brothel in the Badlands and led into the downstairs bedroom. And once there, Pamela began to panic. This was no party. This was nowhere that she should be. And then the men started taunting her. Prentice, of course, was there, but French also thinks longtime suitor John O'Brien and Joe Nof were there too, along with the Italian doctor Capuzzo, a confirmed friend of Prentice's. Werner's contacts at the brothel confirmed that these men were there on Russian Christmas, as they often were. But Pamela was a wild child. She was not the sort of woman to sit back and let things happen to her. She would have talked back, as she usually did. And these were not men who liked women talking back to them. The men cornered her and began their attack. After they killed her, they took her to a bathroom in the brothel, slit her throat, and drained her of her blood. Prentice, mind you, was a dentist. He would know his way around a knife and know that they needed to drain her of blood if they were ever going to be able to transport her body out of the brothel and then walk away from it all with clean clothes. So they drained her of her blood, then covered her with a sheet and dragged her out to the waiting rickshaw, supporting her under the arms to make it seem like she was just super drunk. 
The rickshaw carried them through the hidden access point in the wall, and then the men made their way to the fox tower, which they knew would be deserted. And there, they began to mutilate her, slash up her face so badly that she couldn't be recognized, stab at her genitals so no one would know if the crime had been sexually motivated, and then carved out her organs to make the murder appear Chinese. They then returned to Prentice's apartment where they tidied up, and he later had the place cleaned and painted just to be safe. But this is just Paul French's theory. Not everyone agrees. Many persist in their belief that Werner himself killed his daughter, and a large number of people continue to insist that the murderer was a sex-crazed Chinese guy. As some of you may remember from the case about Elsie Sigil and the Chinatown trunk murder, the notion that Chinese men were all sex-crazed has been a popular stereotype throughout history. And, duh, is not true. But that's not to say that there aren't some other theories about the case that do make sense. Back when DCI Dennis was investigating the murder, he was approached by Helen Foster Snow, wife of journalist Edgar Snow, who wrote the first sort of expose about Mao for the Western world. The Snows themselves were pro-communist, and thus a polarizing figure in Peking. Edgar Snow was no fan of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang. For those who don't know, Chiang Kai-shek was leader of the China Republic from 1928 to 1948, when he lost the Chinese Civil War to Mao and the Communists. The Kuomintang was the Chinese Nationalist Party that supported Chiang Kai-shek. Well, Edgar Snow talked lots and lots of shit about him and the Kuomintang's habits of beheading communists left and right. Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang obviously hated Snow in return, Helen Foster Snow, who was similarly politically active, feared that she was the intended target, not Pamela. Helen and Pamela looked very much alike from report to the time. They were the same height and complexion, and though Helen was older than Pamela, it wasn't that noticeable. Especially at a distance and especially at night— and they lived practically as neighbors on the same street. Helen even liked to ride her bike around the same routes that Pamela did. Helen was paranoid that the Kuomintang wanted to take her out as revenge for what her husband was printing about them, but got Pamela either by mistake or because they couldn't get their hands on Helen herself. It was me they were after, she told the detective, not Pamela. It was a warning. Helen told Dennis that she believed her husband Edgar had been placed on the list. She was referring to the Blue Shirts, a military statistical bureau that compiled a list of their enemies. Paul French says that the Blue Shirts were run by Lai Tai, aka the Himmler of China, or the most feared man in China. Lai Tai was notoriously anti-foreigner, especially British ones for all the destruction they had brought to his country. And according to Helen Snow, the blue shirts were everywhere at the time of Pamela's death. 
They were underground, they were out in the open, there were rumors of them killing their enemies and cutting their hearts out. All of this made sense to Dennis, and it definitely made him stop and think, but this just wasn't what the blue shirts were known for. They were known for a quick shot to the head and then moving on to their next target. There was no show involved the way there was with Pamela's murder. And anyway, Dennis doubted that there was a single person in the country who could actually trace the murder to the blue shirts and lie tie anyway. Even if it was them, who the hell would do anything about it? He was the dead end of all dead ends, Paul French wrote. And then there were those who believed the Japanese were responsible for Pamela's murder. The first secretary for the Japanese legation offered Werner some assistance in his search and pointed him to a crucial witness. But why the Japanese decided to help him is open to interpretation. It's well known that the Japanese were trying to undermine the Chinese at this time, French writes of how they brought large amounts of opium into China to do just that. And then there was the fact that the Japanese were still kind of pissed at what happened in 1936 when their soldier, Kisaku Sasaki, was killed in a drunken fight with a British soldier. The word on the streets was that Pamela was killed as revenge for Sasaki. But as with Dennis and Lai Tai's blue shirts, there was no way for Werner or anyone, really, to confirm such a thing. A literary war began several years ago when a retired police officer published A Death in Peking. The author, Graham Shepard, is married to a descendant of Consul Fitzmaurice, and they were apparently upset by the way the murder investigation and Fitzmaurice were portrayed. I mean, French didn't write the greatest stuff about the guy, but that's just because from what I've read, he just wasn't a great guy, advocating stealing historical relics from China and transporting them to London, refusing to entertain any suspect in the murder case that was not Chinese. Even if the guy was my distant relative, this would not be the hill I'd want to die on. There are better dudes to defend. Anyway, Shepard shockingly came to the conclusion that Paul French was wrong in declaring Prentice as the murderer. Shepard read Midnight in Peking and then dove into researching the case with the hunch that French had gotten everything wrong. From a policing perspective, Shepard said, the evidence simply didn't add up. To be fair, a lot of the complaints Shepard had about French's book were thoughts that I also had while reading it. For one, as close as Werner was to the case, as much as he had studied Chinese history and society, and even as immersed as he was in the case, Werner was not an impartial investigator. He had always been a man with very strong opinions, and the gruesome murder of his daughter only strengthened his convictions. Now, that's not to say that means Werner was wrong in his conclusions. It's just to say that his emotional involvement in the case made him a very biased observer of the situation. 
And then there is the fact that everyone always said Werner was a difficult man to begin with. He was only one of two diplomats forced to retire because of his temperament. But one has to wonder if this was because he was just an asshole, or because he was dealing with a bunch of assholes who didn't want to take him seriously. And with the amount of corruption going on there, we should also keep in mind the many motives authorities had for making Werner out to be a crazy person. Shepard argues that French relied mostly on Werner's research. Most of the sources he cites are from letters that Werner wrote to various government employees trying to get Pamela's case reopened. These pleas were the basis for French's argument that Prentice and his band of foreigners killed Pamela. One of the other things that really bothered me while reading French's book was the fact that he paid so many people for their help. After Japan invaded the city, nearly everyone was hard up for money, much more than they had been in 1937 when Pamela was murdered. How difficult do you think it would have been for him to find people who need money and would make up stories about seeing his daughter to get that money? Furthermore, several of these sources were addicted to heroin, including two of the sex workers that Werner spoke to. The rickshaw driver's son was also rumored to have used opium that night to get through his work. The drug was so prevalent in Peking at the time that it has to make you wonder who was saying what just to be able to buy more of it. So, on this, Shepard was correct. Money taints the truth. Shepard also argues that French lied about key details, like that there was no later showing that Prentice could have seen on the night of the murder. On an old website that he has since taken down, he shared segments of the Peiping Chronicle, Peking's English newspaper at the time in which one theater does announce a 9.15 showing that night. Though this still isn't 8 p.m., which is what Prentice had claimed and still contradicts his alibi. Shepard also claims that the receipt signed by Prentice for Pamela's dental work was actually dated to 1930, not 36, six years earlier than what Paul French claimed. So, Shepard argues that Prentice could very well have said he had never seen Pamela before, and meant it, because she was only a girl at the time and he didn't remember her. But I can't say for sure, because Shepard never showed this alleged receipt either. He claimed to have a link to it on his old website, but the link was a dead end to a completely different page. So, yeah, Shepard wasn't exactly showing his sources for his claim either. But Shepard wasn't the only one to question Paul French. Others also point out details in Midnight that couldn't be true. For example, some argue that Pamela couldn't have been discovered where she was at the base of the Fox Tower, and that she must have been found further down and inside of the Tartar Wall rather than outside of it. Initial reports are often wrong, though, and this exact report also got Werner's name wrong and said that Pamela was 17 when she was actually just about to turn 20. 
When it comes down to it, Shepard's argument is this. Quote, I could not conceive how the British and Chinese police had somehow failed with suspects where the father claimed to have succeeded. End quote. He, the ex-cop, could not conceive how other cops could have failed. Hmm. Sounds to me like a cop with a misplaced amount of trust in other cops. Shepard told the World of China website, quote, The notion that a British consul or any of the many people involved in the investigation would willfully allow the murderers of a British subject to evade justice merely because of her difficult father just doesn't hold water. End quote. And it makes you wonder why Shepard has so much trust in the British consulate of the 1930s, particularly when most historians will tell you all about how rampant corruption was, and particularly when we all know damn well how racist the British Empire has been throughout history. And again, Shepard tells the site, I couldn't see how the British and Chinese police had missed suspects that the father had found. It's hubris. He thinks law enforcement should be correct simply by virtue of their being police. He talks shit about Paul French having no experience as an investigator, but Shepard has no experience as a historian either, so stalemate there. Though he is really into writing military history on his own. I have a theory that military historians don't really like history. They just really like war and blood and destruction. Hulk! Man stuff! The crux of his argument was what he kept repeating. I don't believe. He didn't want to believe Paul French, so he wrote a book about what he wanted to have happened. In the end, Shepard argues that it was Pamela's Chinese friend who killed her, Han Shu Ching, the one who had his nose broken by Werner for paying too much attention to her five years before her death. And why? Because that's who Detective Dennis believed the killer was. And despite all his shit-talking about French not citing his sources, Shepard gives no substantial evidence for this sex-crazed Chinese murderer boyfriend theory. What is lost in all of this, all of the literary drama, the wars, the diplomatic bullshit of the time, is Pamela. The wild child, the free spirit, the girl who did not deserve to end up mutilated and dead at the base of an ancient wall, her thumb still tucked into her fists, a leftover of both the sheer terror she faced and her resolve to fight back. She should have lived to see 20. Guess what? You will be listening to episode 40 of Old Blood three weeks from now. I have no idea how we got to 40, but it's pretty exciting that we're here. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us some love by leaving a kind rating or review. Additional photos and information about this case can be found on our Instagram by searching for Old Blood Podcast. 
For a list of our sources, see our show notes or go to oldbloodpodcast.com. Talk to you soon. Thank <laughs> you.